Hello, Story Seekers. I'm Ben. I'm Nico, and you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. Welcome to this write-like episode. As you know, in these episodes we talk about famous and infamous writers while tackling prompts in their honour. Style, structure, tone. We intend to see what happens when we borrow from them. Our writer today is a British-born master of mysteries and the creator of one of the most well-known characters in their genre, if not the world, Hercule Poirot. They once said that the best time to plan a book is while you're doing the dishes. She must have worn those plates paper thin. We are, of course, talking about Agatha Christie. I mean, those plates must have been wafer thin, man. They're 66 mystery novels. She was exceptionally rich, I think, during her... Like, she was born rich and became a world-famous novelist, so she probably had quite a lot of plates in her various houses. But even then, they probably did get quite thin, yeah. 66, and then about 160 or so short stories as well. Yeah, just endless. Yeah. Just... Do you know she, she didn't write any of it down, generally? Well, what? She, she, would, she would handwrite things. Right. And then give them to someone else to type up. And then later, when the dictaphone became available, she would dictate everything and then send it off to be typed up. That's very strange. She just didn't like... She wasn't a uh, like a mechanical person, was how she described it. She's not a mechanical person. Yeah, very strange that. I, I, um, I really find that like I work it out on the page, so I can only assume she was mulling really hard inside her head in order to spit it out pretty much perfect. Do you reckon the? Uh, <laughs> do you remember two hundred and four pages ago when I said that Poirot was doing this? Go back. I fucked up. <laughs> I wonder if she had an eidetic memory. Oh, maybe. That's really quite interesting to find that out. And also, where's the editing process in that in that regard? Like, who even knows? Well, apparently, her mum used to help edit them. I know that much. Right. So the implication is the person typing them up is sort of putting them into do it on the fly. Yeah, a little bit. Hmm. That's really strange. That. Um, a really interesting. Uh, character herself as well she sort of got about quite a bit she was sort of a member of that like upper middle class uh, sorry uh, you know sorry not upper middle class like upper class yeah that people were fascinated with at that point in, in history i know um she married an archaeologist oh, really? we, when she, so she, she had a fascination with archaeology but when someone asked her why she'd married an archaeologist she said well the older i get the more interested he shall be in me <laughs> Which is a, that's a properly good quote. That is some British wit right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. But um, I think generally I actually haven't had a huge amount of exposure to her writing. Um, no. For, like, as, a, as, an, as an Englishman, you get absolutely bombarded with various, um, you know, TV shows and movies of Agatha oh, Christie's work. Yeah, so Miss Marple, Hercule Poirot. Just everything. Um, I mean, I, I very much grew up occasionally watching uh, David Suchet's Hercule Poirot. Yeah. Um, so whilst I have a, a, you know, an understanding of the the structure that gets translated into um, into a visual medium, I hadn't. I, I actually I still haven't read any of her novels. 
I have read some of her short stories, yes. but not not her novels. So um, I guess it doesn't matter for this because we're talking about short stories anyway. But I, I do think it's a weird a weird blind spot for me. I've normally I've normally covered people like this. I just haven't. I think yeah, she she's such an institution, especially in England or in the UK. The it seems weird that neither of us have read a, a full novel. Mm. And also are so com- comfortable with, with her work, like with her characters. Yeah. and Yeah. Have you, have you seen any of the recent movie? I, I did. I, I yeah. saw them both uh, a f- few months ago, I think it was. Um, I, I They were fun. They were a bit sort of... I wasn't out- a massive fan. <laughs> no, I can sort of see that. I think I don't think they were generally well-received... But uh, I, I like, I do like Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. And uh, in particular, the Death on the Nile one was just filled with beautiful people. So it was sort of quite sort of, it was like, it was like visual chewing gum, really, with like a an intriguing enough mystery to actually turn it into a watchable movie. Uh, that's exactly what her work seems to be about, though. It's beautiful people in a beautiful place and something bastardly happens. <laughs> that's, that's all you need, really. Yeah, yeah. I think that that sort of that appears to be the life she lived anyway, doesn't it? I don't, I don't yeah, know. yeah. Well, you know, on that, Christie did once say that every murderer is probably somebody's old friend. So <laughs> I do hope that that's a story you've got behind your back, <laughs> old friend. You're up first, and to the prompt, the party. The party. The cake quickly became mush in his mouth as he strove to find a single recognisable flavour. Despite all the cases he had solved in his career, the mystery as to whether his taste buds had yet to recover from Covid, or the baker was a fool, would perhaps finally elude him. Monsieur M chuckled to himself at his cruelness before sighing and placing his ambitiously laden plate back down on the table. Balloons emblazoned with the number nine bobbed around his bald head, and he forced a path through their strings in order to leave the disappointing buffet. The raucous noise of children screaming with, apparently, delight, ricocheted within his eardrums. Monsieur M, unused to such displays of cowardice, looked for somewhere he might flee to. A small wooden facsimile of a house lay between two overhanging trees, a short way down the garden. He made for it with purposeful strides, and smartly wrapped his knuckles on the thin wood of the door. There was, of course, no answer, all the children having chosen to run around madly in the sun, but the polite niceties had to be observed. Monsieur M opened the door and stooped to step inside. Within were some toys strewn over the muddied concrete floor and a worn wooden children's table and chairs by the small window. He sat himself with as much grace as possible at the table and brought out his flask. Once opened, it emitted the strong smells of herbal tea. Monsieur M poured some into the lid, and crossed his legs before staring pensively out at the party. Parents, their foreheads showing the erosion of worry that occurs with the responsibility of child-rearing, congregated in clumps at the head of the garden. The barrier they formed, he saw, was a protective perimeter between the lawn and the house. As he watched, some children attempted to take their games near the house and were accosted and checked with clean hands before their travel would be permitted. Everything seemed to be naturally quite organised, something Monsieur M could approve of. The volume of the squealing children was far more acceptable at his newfound range, and he found himself beginning to relax. His mind, an expertly calibrated machine, required regular puzzles to remain at peak efficiency, 
And so, Monsieur M began to mull on his surroundings. He was rudely erupted almost immediately by a knock on the small door of the Wendy house. Who is it? he asked. Brandon, can I play too? No, unfortunately, the house is occupied at present. But I want to play. Ah, alas, there are things in life that one cannot have despite how much it is wanted, Nispa. The door was flung open and a disgruntled small boy child stomped inside. I see you are the birthday boy. Yes, but how did you know? You are wearing an oversized badge with birthday boy written upon it in a ridiculous font. What are you playing in here? I am cogitating, not playing. Can I play too? It is uh, not a game for children. Why not? Please, please, birthday boy. I must ask you to leave me in peace. Why not return to your guests? I'm telling, the boy pouted. At your pleasure, monsieur. He allowed himself a small smile as young Brandon stomped back up the garden into the knot of parental figures. Monsieur M smoothly shifted mental gears back to his previous state and began to focus on small details around himself. He dragged one of his booted feet over the dirty floor and the edges of his eyes crinkled as the machine behind them began to masticate. Brandon just told me there was a strange French man in the Wendy house. Why are you putting that on, Miller? A tall man with fading marks of bad facial burn scarring smiled at Mr. Miller lopsidedly through the small window. Ah, Henry, I thought it might amuse him, replied Miller, flourishing another accent from his repertoire. Why are you hiding out in here then? I'm not hiding. I'm participating at a distance. You're trying to find something to investigate, aren't you? Which leads directly to my question. When did you build this Wendy house, Henry? Nine years ago, said Henry, or perhaps ten. Come along, the magician's about to perform. I do not like magic. It reeks of lice, replied Mr. Miller, who promptly drained his tea and carefully replaced the flask in his jacket. He made a show of walking with Henry to the top of the garden, where the children were being sat around a magician. The man had already begun and made a show of vanishing a small bird from one of his hands and reappearing it in the other. His legerdemain caused raucous cooing from the children, but Mr. Miller saw instantly how it might be achieved with two different birds. Mr. Miller continued past the show and into the house, half expecting someone to check his hands for garden dirt. Within the house, Mr. Miller perused the family photos that were displayed in the living room. He had known Brandon's mother, Felicity, long before she had borne the child. But he saw that her beauty had gradually matured as the photos documented that part of her life he had not been present for. An early case of his, involving her mother's jewels, had led to a chaste courtship between them, and, ultimately, a lifelong correspondence. The fire which had left her husband Henry scarred had formed the basis of many email exchanges, as had the birth of her son soon after. Despite the deformity Henry had suffered, the family appeared happy in all of the photos, perhaps even more so after Henry's incident. Mr Miller's eyes crinkled again as the machine whirred, then clicked to a stop. A wellspring of sadness flooded his heart, and he made use of the landline to place a telephone call. He replaced the receiver just before a woman's voice accosted him. Clarence, French and Scottish, what on earth are you doing? I was having some fun. I would say a birthday party is the perfect place for that. Clarence, dropping all accents, tried to keep a jocular tone, but saw that his unhappiness had been poorly hidden. Is something the matter? 
you neglected to mention that you murdered your husband in your emails to me. <laughs> what? He's outside right now. That is not your husband. My current assumption is that the real Henry is below the foundations of your charming Wendy house. That man outside is your lover and the biological father of Brandon. Upon discovering the infidelity, I suspect Henry confronted you both. Perhaps there was a scuffle, and then a body to dispose of. Whoever that man outside is, he m must love you both dearly to have sacrificed his face to be with you and cover up your crime. You are arrogant indeed to invite me to your home, suspiciously never having done so before. Perhaps you wanted to be caught. This is nonsense, Clarence. Are you jealous after all these years? I am decidedly not. In fact, I am deeply disappointed with myself. Your beauty hobbled my mind and prevented me from involving myself sooner. I have already summoned an excavation team from Scotland Yard. I suggest you bring the birthday party to a close. Felicity's resolve snapped, and she reached for him with desperate pleading seeping into her attractive features. Please, Clarence, call them off. We're happy. He attacked John first. He splashed acid in his face and said he'd do the same to me before kicking the baby out of my belly. I was just defending us. We've made a life from that horror. Please don't ruin it. Her fingers were warm on his arm, and Clarence found himself studying her face, like a man looking for permission to kiss her. His feelings for her, stoked by her touch, raged up into a passionate fire. But with a gargantuan effort, Clarence Miller extinguished those flames. He placed his hand on hers, gripping her wrist. Murder is still murder. You are under arrest. That was fucking great, man. You liked it? <clears throat> I really did. First of all, some of the best jokes you've ever written in the story. Oh, you think so? Oh, the, I nearly died at... Uh, you must be the birthday boy. How do you know? You are wearing a large badge that says <laughs> birthday boy. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a perfect rug pull joke. Absolutely love it. <laughs> Same with the, uh, he did not like magic. It reeks of lies. That is, <laughs> he thought that could be achieved with two separate birds. Like all of it was just absolutely brilliant. And it set it up perfectly for this, you know, the, these three characters, you know, Mr. M into Mr. Miller into Clarence. And, you know, and then finally becoming Clarence Miller at the end. Hmm. Just that that whole thread of the different people he was to the people around him to get to the answers he needed. Absolutely spot on. Absolutely nailed it. Totally. Oh, I like it. Uh, yeah, that's 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 really kind of you. I uh, I I do. I do think it um, it is missing a few of the sort of like classic Agatha Christie things. Like you know, he doesn't gather everyone in one place, but there is still the you know reveal. Uh, sort of long-winded reveal and um, I feel like I breadcrumbed the strange things that were happening inside the household and in the garden yeah um, but disguised brilliantly around his odd behaviour as well yeah very deeply odd man I think obviously I was playing with Hercule Poirot as like a concept especially with the French bit the, well, yeah. the French accent bit at the start um I know he's Belgian, isn't he? But still, yes. he gets confused for Frenchman quite a lot, doesn't he? Um, yeah, and um, he, yeah, it's just, 
it was, it, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I felt like I was playing with ideas around Agatha Christie rather than like fully nailing it. But um, I tried to keep the language quite simple, which I, which I think she did. Um, apart from when I was talking about his mental processes, because I was yeah. trying to encourage a lexicon around him that was. He's clearly this big character detective person. Yeah. Um, and just like, you know, Poirot's got this uh, weird thing about desserts and. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Like, I was trying to give him those kind of personality traits or character traits that I think. I think Agatha Christie encouraged in, in her repeat characters. Because I think, you know, him always using different accents and stuff with people, that would be very strange. And if, if there were, you know, 50 short stories of this guy, that would start to become quite a, an in-joke, wouldn't it, quite quickly? I reckon so. Mm. The, um... You know, we always have something that's in both of our stories. Uh-huh. This time it's weird. Right. Go on then, let's have your story. Okay. The party. It was not usual practice for me to attend parties unaccompanied. I was a handsome woman in my youth, and had in fact garnered a reputation for taking the company of handsome gentlemen to impress this fact upon my peers. This party, however, occurring on the 4th of July, in celebration of America's independence from Britain, and bizarrely being held in a three-bedroomed house in Bermondsey, I attended alone. I did so because I'd heard that a party guest would be quite the fellow of interest. And truly he was. It came to be half-past three o'clock in the morning, and this particular party guest, one Marcel Lapin, had gathered what remained of the party guests in the lounge. Gentlemen, ladies. He seemed to meet my eyes when he said this, as though selecting me from the other lady, although truly perhaps it is my ego that recalls it this way. I'm afraid a terrible thing has occurred during the course of this evening's festivities. A couple of the guests gasped, though I found myself instead taken with the appearance of Lapin. His eyes were the hue of brushed steel, and just as cold, they sat in an angular face, not without beauty, in fact all the more beautiful, for its strangeness. Those angles of his face, and those eyes like a butcher's blade, were easily lost, however. All focus, when taking in the man, was drawn to the neat pair of moustaches he wore, twirled their ends in an intricate pattern. It flared as though a hirsute swan took flight from his upper lip. Something seemed to almost glitter in it as though it was coated with tiny gems. But what, what is this occurrence? The voice of Michael Wen, a close friend of the evening's host, and a man well known, though, as far as society was concerned, almost completely unregarded. An act of terrible betrayal. Someone has, in the course of this evening, crossed the threshold to the garden and entered the garage an act which had been forbidden by the host, and stated quite implicitly, not only on the invitations, but again upon arrival. Drunk several bottles of expensive wine, eaten a dish of leftover shepherd's pie, thirteen bags of crisps, and written, Ed's mum is a tosser on the wall, in frankly enormous letters in spray paint. <laughs> there was a moment of horror, while we all contemplated such a heinous act. 
The Ed in question was Edgar Broom, whose house we're all currently sat in, or more accurately, whose mother's, uh, the accused tosser, house we're all sat in. She was taking holiday in Tenerife at the time, and thus not attending the party. Who could have done such a thing? said Felicity Hawke, the only other woman still in attendance, a pretty young thing, who had magnetised much of the affection of the gentleman in attention, to my chagrin. This young Miss Ock is precisely why I have gathered you, the remaining guests, here. It occurred to me only then that one of us may be the culprit, and in fact must be. The thought seemed to ripple through the room, heads turned this way and that, and a wave of fear coursed among us. Any one of us could be a savage, capable of an act like this. There were five of us in total. Myself, Edgar the host, Michael Wen, his dear friend, Felicity, the sweetheart of the evening, and of course, Le Pan, who surveyed us now as a jaguar would wander us in its jungle. Now, the side door, the only way to enter the garage, had remained locked for most of the evening. Is this not correct, Monsieur Brum? Lepin turned his eyes upon the host. Uh, yeah? Yeah, that's right. He nodded so violently, I thought his head might roll from his shoulders. And only I know where the key lives. Is that so? I thought that young Monsieur Dunn would also know. Is he not a, a frequent visitor to your home? Ed looked then at Michael, as though he had never seen him before. You suppose that's true? There was something of disbelief to his tone as he looked at his friend then, who pleaded with him. Come on, Ed, mate, you know I'd never say nothing like that about your mum. I love Janine to bits. Lepin smiled then, a brilliant smile, as though he had caught something between those teeth. In that smile, I was sure I saw the tiniest traces of some herb, tucked between a pair of them. Though perhaps I was mistaken. Ah, perhaps the truth of it. You call the woman Janine. The culprit, when I discovered the scene, had not used Madame Brum's name. Perhaps he did not know it, or perhaps he was covering his tracks. Most fascinating. He thought again. And you, monsieur, did you not in fact unlock the door to feed your cat not two hours ago? Edgar looked at his own hands, then checked his pocket. My keys? I must have left them in the door. Quite so, Lepin nodded. Lepin turned then to look at Felicity. She quailed under his gaze, which had an intensity of age her early twenties was unaccustomed to. He fixed her with a look. I could not see it, his back being almost completely turned to me now. Well, Miss Ark, have you found yourself in the last hour or so? Felicity seemed to dart then back and forth in her countenance. So unlike her namesake, the hawk, an ironic rodent caught in the gaze of a swooping raptor. I rather couldn't say, she protested. I'm afraid I'm going to have to insist. Le Pen leant towards her, the rabbit and the hawk. Nature inverted, as Lepin ducked between the talons so evident to myself, and struck the hawk's soft belly. I was upstairs, 
she said softly, another forbidden area by the rules of the party. A crime confessed, but perhaps one less heinous. Ah, so you out yourself as a rule breaker. I didn't break no rules. Ed took me up there. The room turned to look at Ed, who had flushed a little pink, especially under the gaze of Michael. He did, and why, Pretzel, did he take you upstairs into an area of limits to party goers, into his trust, when I believe before tonight you knew him only in passing? Well, I only know him through Mike, that's true, she said, her eyes downturned a little. But we're not there for privacy. And what would you need to do privately where no guest could witness you? Le Pen pressed, unravelling threads as he went. He was... She sighed and let herself slump. He was fingering me, all right? <laughs> Shock uncoiled itself, serpent-like, in the room. <laughs> Fucking hell, Ed, I told you I wanted to get off with Fizz. That's why we invited her. Mike, mate, I never meant to. We just got on really well, like, and it sort of happened. I can't believe this. Michael stood from his chair. Ed, too, stood in response. Old friends brought near to blows by the affection of a young woman. Which, of course, leaves only you. Le Pan's voice cut through the room as he rounded on me. Me? You can't be serious. He pointed a finger at me. It was smudged here and there with blue paint. Holding me to my chair with the invisible line of energy from his fingertip, he closed on me. This close, I smelt a heavy scent on his breath. Oh, I am quite serious. He retracted his point to smooth his moustache. Guys, seriously, hold on a minute. Are we buying this? There was silence then laden heavily with expectations. He's got paint on his fingers, his breath smells like gravy and cheap plonk, and he's still got bits of crisp in his moustache. He knows all this stuff about where everyone was and when the doors were unlocked. Look, this happens at every party he goes to. It's clearly Le Pan. There were a few moments while everyone considered my outburst, and then, in a shocking revelation, Le Pan cried, Meld, I'm fucking rumbled! and burst elegantly through the front living room window in a cascade of glinting glass fragments. I have not seen nor heard from Le Pen in the time since, though I am often still visited by the memory of his butcher's knife eyes and his ridiculous accent. <laughs> that was fucking hilarious. Oh, that was so funny. I'm glad. <laughs> such a good time writing that. Ah, uh, very uh, pastiche, I think. Yes. Um, which uh, which I was I was fine with. I enjoyed it, especially because you have all the elements at the start. You know, this um, these like sort of long descriptions of things. Um, that you know, the brush steel of his eyes, the butcher's blade eyes, her suit swan was also possibly <laughs> possibly an indicator where of where that story was going. Um. Loved it, yeah. Thought it was very funny. I thought you you played with the the character type of uh, you know of, of uh, Poirot. Yeah, I can see what you were talking about when you said uh, there was a lot of shared there. We were both well, the we both had a character called Felicity. Yeah, that's weird too. Of all the names. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder what's happening there. 
Something... Yeah, it's just something about the setting, apparently. It makes us think Felicity. Like the Agatha Christie mode. Someone has to be called yeah. Felicity. Called Fizz. Fizz, yes. I, what, a, what a deeply strange party as well. Fourth of July party in Bermondsey, London, uh, with, with hosted by a Brummy. Yep. What what is going on there? I mean, I've it's been to all, some. All of her stories are like that, though. They're always in a, a thing happening in a place that you wouldn't expect it to be happening, and everyone's just from somewhere that isn't that place. True. Yeah. No. I think because you're you're totally right, and obviously you've you've activated that for comedic intent. Yeah. Whereas I guess with her, it's it's um to sort of uh, disguise and and confuse the area around the mystery, isn't it? Like, and and possibly play with people's like preconceptions of um, various stereotypes as well. I know she she has sort of vaguely gotten in trouble even during her lifetime with some of the uh, stereotypes she deployed. In particular, I think the um, um, anti-Semitism was uh, one of the ones that she yeah. got. In, Got in hot water, hot water for. I think she was yeah. being a bit uh, being a bit crude in the way that she was deploying a Jewish stereotype um, to the point where the uh, like the anti uh, like anti Jewish defamation league or whatever it's called in the states like got involved legally. Um, so yeah, no, I think you. I think so. You didn't do that. Sorry, just to be clear. Um, but um, I think the way that she she played with stereotypes, I think you did 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 it very well for for what you were trying to do. Love the idea of the 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 Poirot character being 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 the murderer in this case, or rather graffiti artist and wine thief and shepherd's pie eater. The concept, there's something about being able to smell shepherd's pie on someone's breath. Yeah, it really brought that story to life for me for some reason. Oh, the uh, I also tried to do the sprinkingly of clues thing. That I think one of the strangest things I've ever thought was how do you describe that someone has eaten loads of crisps and they've got all the salt and like bits of crisp yeah. powder in their moustache? The uh, what you described it as like little gems or something, didn't yeah, you? Like yeah, like his moustache seemed to glitter. Yeah, which yeah, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> Ed, what was it? Ed's mother is a tosser. Was, yeah, <laughs> was really where this uh, the story started to change gear. It's I'm, I'm I'm slightly ashamed that I couldn't get past Meld and fucking Rumba <laughs> without just absolutely losing it. <laughs> it the uh, I guess it does jump the shark a bit at the end when he jumps through a window, doesn't it? But <laughs> it um it uh, is it's it's funny. It makes you laugh. It's yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. That was fun. I mean, yeah, it's it's. It's ludicrous that, the, like, I completely cheated the system because this should have, this should be the last bit of a much longer story, and I'm really glad it's not because a whole book of this would be havoc. Absolute havoc, absolute havoc. Oh, I think I think that we've done possibly reasonably well there. I assume um, uh, people that are far more well up on Agatha Christie than us would take issue with the way that we've approached this oh god yeah and be entirely within their rights to do so like yeah we you know of all the of all the writers we've dealt with so far in this in this right like for season four i think this is possibly the least well up on them we've been um, i'd say so 
At, at least on the, on the written words, you know. I feel like I need to go away and read some because, uh, yeah, it's just a gap that I've now, we've both sort of gone, oh, yeah, just not done that. And she's clearly yeah. good. It wouldn't be what it is. Oh, yeah, it's, it's definitely excellent. Like, I, I reread, um, so, the, so there's one short story that I read ages ago called, uh, I think it's like Wasp Nest or something. Um, and I reread it last week, and it's just it's just great. It, yeah. It's a bit it's a bit more sort of like um, I didn't even know what the word might be, but like uh, it's not as fleshed out, you know. It's not as full as yeah her stories, but that's simply because it's basically flash fiction. It's very short; it's like three pages long. Um, I, but it's just wonderful. Like this, uh, you know, the reveal and. Uh, Poirot's descriptions and stuff like that. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's it's so so cleverly done. So clearly she could do that in very few words and then also write millions of them. <laughs> yeah. Just, so, just endlessly create. Yeah. There's definitely something to be said about the structure of mystery novels as well that we haven't really um, touched on. Like, you, you did the reveal part and I sort of did the um, breadcrumbing yeah. that, that there had been a crime. Or perhaps that there was going, you know, I think that the, we sort of did two the two halves of it, didn't we? Possibly quite simply yeah. because we didn't have the words to do both. That's true. Um, the reason I bring it up is because I really despise it in detective fiction or in you know mystery novels or however you want to term it. When the the information that you needed to figure it out is actually just straight up withheld from you. And it, yes. it happens. It has. It happens occasionally in books, and it, it happens a lot in movies, where you get to the end, and then something that you couldn't have possibly known is revealed, and then it's sort of like, ah, that's and that's that's why they did it. And I hate it. It's like you know, you know, we talked to guests about like um, tropes of fiction and uh, storytelling devices that aggravate them. Yeah. That's. I think that's one of them for me. Like uh, definitely my top three of. De- of narrative devices that fucking in, fuck me off in badly written like horror thriller movies it's always it'll show you all the scenes again where it's clearly setting someone up as the villain and then the camera pans ever so slightly and there's a dude that's never been in shot exactly now yeah, that, killer. exactly always yeah. that isn't it it's that that kind of thing and so if i was to cite an example of a uh you know a detective story that does very well at this uh, you know, sorry, doesn't fuck it up, does it perfectly? It would be to go far closer to our our wheelhouse, which is Pratchett and uh, yeah. Feet of Clay. Yes, which gives you everything you need to know. You you can figure it out inside the first like probably ten fifteen pages. Yeah. Um, but at least I I didn't figure it out then. And when no. when the ca- when the character has this like light bulb moment towards the end of the book you you very much share it and it's this big emotional release where you get the satisfying ah there it is and it's i think one of the things that's so good about that book is every time vimes does sort of reach a new maybe it's this you've been given the same clues at the same time and you're mm-hmm. thinking the same like that's but you're exactly also being yeah. ex- exactly and you're also being led by his thinking yeah so you're quite happy to sort of go down a rabbit hole with him and then and then get stumped like he does. And I, I, I assume that this happens quite a lot in across the genre when you get people that are good at writing this. 
this kind of fiction, these kind of story structures. Because, yeah, it, you, have to, you have to have it all in there. So, for example, I would say in my story that, that I read out earlier, it's really weird for a, for a Wendy house to have a concrete floor. Yeah. And you'd, you'd have to know, like, the information is there that that's odd. Yes. But you'd, you'd have to sort of know about it to, to figure it out, I think. Um, to, you'd have to be thinking laterally in order to be like, why on earth would they have foundations for a Wendy house? Yeah. Um, so it's that kind of thing. That, that was that was why I did that, and and a few other bits and stuff as well. But um, yeah, what interesting one I would say. I think we've we've had fun. We've told each other some stories there. I would say I'm pretty far from comfortably saying oh, I've I've plumbed the depths of this particular writing style, or or indeed gotten anywhere near scratching the surface of Agatha Christie. Yeah. The um, how do you feel about it? I. I just I feel like all I learned by doing this was that I don't know anything about this author, <laughs> and but in a good way. In a now now I just want to because I did actually really enjoy the process of like trying to work clues in and because I've never written a mystery before at all, mm. and it's hard. It's it's genuinely really difficult because. You have to think sort of not non laterally. And yeah. That that part of the challenge was interesting. And I think it's made me wanna uh, you know, as she's written so many great mystery books, go and read some to sort of get more of the genre in me so that I can have another go and actually maybe write a proper mystery. I think I would have to start with the ones that are outside of the common commonly known ones. Yeah, because stuff like the Orient Express one and like, um, you know, and Death on the Nile now as well, like the ones that we've had any real exposure to through like David Suchet's Poirot and the Miss Marvel TV show and the the movies that have come out. Yeah, like I don't think I would get much of a kick from reading them. Like, yeah, beyond beyond being able to analyze the way that she'd create the story, I think I want to be surprised by her. So fortunately, she's written like sixty books or something, hasn't she? Of, like, yeah, novels. Like, so I'm sure I can find one that isn't related to something that I've already seen the reveal on. So we, uh, we've we ended up with a bit in our right likes that we call Verging on Apocryphal. New segment, Verging New on segment. Apocryphal. <laughs> but, like, there's so much about her life that it's, it's just, like, documented fact, and it's fucking weird. I just know she Go was on. an avid surfer. Oh shit! I think I did know that. Wasn't she one of the first people to, like, one of the first women to stand up surfing or something in Hawaii? I, I don't, I don't know about that bit, but that sounds likely. Yeah, huh. avid surfer worked as an apothecary. Huh. Before she started writing novels, I, oh. I kind of assumed that she was like um, too upper class to work for some reason. I, I'm guessing that she did it because she wanted to. Like her mum didn't want her to learn to read, so she taught herself. Her mum, sorry, her mum didn't want her to learn to read. Yeah. What the fuck? Let's see if Why? I can find out more about that. That's really bizarre. All yeah, all I've managed to find is that she taught herself to read against her mother's wishes. <laughs> Maybe that is verging on apocryphal. That one, that one feels like it's verging. That's that's child abuse at that stage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I think. Um, Actually, this this is a genuinely fun one. She holds a Guinness World Record for the world's thickest book. 
<laughs> really? Yes, it is a... Uh, HarperCollins did a single bound collection of all of the Miss Marple stories as one volume. Ooh. It weighed 15 pounds. Bloody hell. Had over 4,000 pages. And it came with its own handle. <laughs> that sounds like um, she wanted them to do it so that she could use it as a murder weapon in a different story. True. Just drop it on someone from a great height. Yeah. Just swing it around. Shot put it into someone's face. Wow. That must have been on, like, dictionary paper. You know, that, that wafer thin almost see-through paper. Or maybe um, not. Maybe they, maybe they just printed it. I mean, the binding on that must have been, like, ironclad. Okay, so uh, I've got... I found a bit more on her mum for you. Okay. Uh, Agatha Christie was seemingly raised by a real piece of work. Christie's <laughs> mother, long before their Egypt trip had convinced both of her children and herself, seemingly, that she was a psychic with the ability to predict the future. As part of the same general pseudo-religious tapestry that led her to uh, believe in clairvoyance, Christie's mother allegedly didn't want her to learn to read until she was older uh, and insisted for a time on keeping her away from formal education outside the home. But, uh, why? So her mum was just loopy. That's the sound of it. That shit, that's so strange. Yeah, just thought she was psychic, didn't want her daughter to read. You know, so, normal normal mum stuff. So the other thing is that, that weird disappearance, isn't it? I know it was sort of, um, it was very uh, well documented at the time. Like, I think there was lots of like news articles about when she disappeared. And then also there was that really random Doctor Who episode years ago about Agatha Christie's disappearance, wasn't there? Oh, that was the tenant with with tenant yeah. and um, oh, what's her name? Donna Noble Temp. Yes, um, uh, I've forgotten her name. Sorry, the actress. Bad for not remembering your name. Sorry. Um, but that was yeah, that was very strange. The so it was after her husband left her, and she just disappeared for uh, I think it was like ten days. Oh wow! And they found her car with an expired license or something and a bunch of clothes on a cliff overlooking like a like a chalk mine. Oh Jesus! So, my understanding is that the it was actually not like people were not happy about it after she got found and stuff because they assumed she tried to like frame a husband or something. But right. but the but the doctors that examined her and questioned her sort of thing were pr were pretty happy that she had like a genuine, unquestionable loss of memory. Like she basically had probably through the stress of her husband leaving her, just went into a fugue state. Oh, wow. So she was clearly like a very highly strung person, yeah. I think. Um, but that's pretty extreme, isn't it? Especially because she was famous at the time. Yeah. Also, just reminding me about the um, that, uh, you know, with the mother being into that kooky psychic stuff. Yeah. Um, apparently, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle got involved. Right. And gave one of her gloves to a famous psychic in London to try and help them find her. Oh, God. So there's definitely like this like web around her of odd, seancey psychic stuff. I mean, she did base most of her characters on real people, so it's a good thing she was surrounded by oddballs because it Just kept complete... her books good. Yeah, complete weirdos. I bet she was an excellent people watcher. Just sort of oh, set, God, yeah. set up on a pavement cafe and just listened to people for ages. 
especially because she wouldn't even have to like be taking notes because apparently she could just remember all of her story. Yeah. What an interesting woman. Um, and uh, I, I feel like a very fine addition to our right likes. Oh, I'd agree. She's, uh, yeah, I, I think I would agree with what you said before that I, that I learned, um, learned more about what I was missing here as a, as a storyteller and writer. Yeah. Um, so I think one, one to chalk up as a must do better, must learn more. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed your story and I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing mine. So I, that's the I important really bit. I enjoyed your story, man. Thank you. Well, all right, let's draw this to a close. But wait. What? Who's that with the knife? <laughs> oh! <laughs> that, that is so cheesy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For rich ginger tones on their scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?